we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And this week, we're speaking with Theo Wold, who currently is Solicitor General of the state of Idaho. And it is a border state, I guess, technically, but that's not what we're talking with him about. He was in the Trump administration involved in immigration issues, and I thought it would be useful to talk to him and see you know, what he learned, what was he surprised by, what lessons might the next administration take from the experience that he had. So uh, thank you, Theo, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And if you could just start out by just telling listeners kind of your basic story and, you know, in one minute. So who are you? What are you doing? How'd you get to immigration? Yeah, I think the best answer to that question is I grew up with immigration policy all all around me. And what I mean by that is I I grew up in the Central Valley of of California Mm -hmm. in a place called Stockton, which for some of your listeners, they will know something about Stockton. It was the foreclosure capital of America in the 08 financial crisis. One in four homes were foreclosed on in Stockton. Prior to that, it was the per capita homicide capital of California, which is saying something when you think about communities like Inglewood or Oakland or Compton. And to think you moved away. Hey, right, right, <laughs> right. And and before that, you know, Stockton was the first majority minority city in, in America. And I think that factoid is interesting because Stockton was essentially a destination point for a lot of the 20th century immigrant wave. So not just migrant farm workers from Mexico or Central America, Filipino nationals, Lao, Hmong, Vietnamese who came in the 60s and 70s, hmm. Koreans who came before that, and then you know folks who, who came from places in the Near East, uh, from Iraq, from Kuwait. Wow. So, you know, Stockton had had a long history with you know, massive immigration, as is true of California generally. But I grew up in a working class family, and you know, my father was a skilled tradesman, an electrician, a plumber, a carpenter. And I think we saw sort of firsthand the economic and, and social destabilization that comes from immigration in a way that I think a lot of parts of the country up until very recently were, were insulated from the direct effects right. of immigration. So I kind of grew up with immigration policy, you know, I mean, when in my childhood, some of the central questions that you would hear around the dinner table or being discussed on the nightly news in California were about bilingual education, Prop 208 and 189, the constitutional challenge to California's restriction on giving welfare benefits to illegal aliens or in-state tuition to illegal aliens. So these were all kind of in the background of my educational formation and, and, and growing up. And I think like a lot of White House staff under President Trump, a lot of us, you know, are products of California. Mm-hmm. And I think in part, it's because 
this is an issue that we've seen up close and, and have lived. So I worked on the Hill briefly before the White House. I'm a lawyer by training and went into the White House to essentially work on certain portions of the immigration portfolio. I mean, it was there was a number of people working that issue set, but I was originally on the Domestic Policy Council and was in charge of uh, DOJ and DHS-related policy issues, so mostly, almost exclusively immigration for the first year of my, my time in the White House. So what did you learn? What did you see in the White House? I mean, maybe before you get to what did you learn, what was it like working on immigration issues in the Trump administration? I think the thing that I, I would say there is rising in how central immigration was to the 15-16 campaign and how little of a structured and sort of choreographed plan there was to advance that agenda once in office. And I think that's partly because for a nationalist populist candidate, however you want to categorize President Trump in 15 and 16, DHS is not a conducive tool to actually executing on an immigration policy that really does put Americans first. How so? So there are a lot of structural issues at DHS. And what I mean by that is is sort of twofold. One, it has tools or obligations with certain agencies or certain issues that are not necessarily mission aligned. Like what? Secret Service, Coast Guard. Oh, I see what you mean. So you you have a lot of these periphery agencies that a secretary or a secretary's senior staff, they're preoccupied with or concerned with at certain times, or some bigger agencies that are central to, to Homeland Security, like FEMA, that can take up right. enormous portions of an annual calendar or enormous manpower resources that have really nothing to do with immigration. Maybe FEMA on the back end sometimes, depending right. on where a disaster is. So it's constructed in a way that doesn't actually lend itself in its constituent parts. And then the other portion of the problem is those pieces that are directed toward immigration enforcement or investigation are really organized either in a haphazard fashion or an incomplete one. So what I mean by that is, for example, you've got these Senate-confirmed heads of the discrete immigration agencies at USCIS, at ICE, and at CBP. And Those folks are Senate-confirmed. They have their own oversight obligations, their own general counsel offices, but they also have to somehow sync with the secretary and the overall DHS general counsel office. Hmm. There's really no good equivalent of that outside of the State Department, and it creates a lot of friction between the general mission alignment or trajectory of the department. Interesting. ICE wants to be doing this, and the secretary will say, no, I actually don't think that's a priority. I will say, well, but, you know, given our resources or the things that we're figuring out from our investigation works over here or in this industry, we think this is a good priority. And the secretary can essentially veto the prioritization of an issue set by another Senate-confirmed agency head. So that's odd. And then I think the second part that makes it odd is you have a lot of seemingly important roles at DHS that have effectively no power, no no influence, and really no resources behind them. Like what? There's a position at DHS called the Assistant Secretary for Border Infrastructure and Trade. And, you know, if you look that out on paper, you know, in 15, 16, you know, January of 17, you would say, oh, that, that's got to be the central role for, for a Trump presidency. I see, yeah. 
the border, it's, it's immigration, it's trade. And then you come to find out, well, that office, a de minimis staff, they really have no resources. They're not Senate confirmed. And they're part of this sort of mid-tier of assistant secretaries that report to the undersecretary, that reports <laughs> to the secretary's office, that reports to the secretary. Right. So, you know, they may be invited to meetings, policy meetings. They, they may be read in on high-level policy priorities at the department. They may not. Interesting. And I think the whole layer of offices there that you would think would have teeth or have the ability to shape and direct the department's resources, turns out they're really just titles on an org chart. So all of that being said, I think the realization that I had after you know maybe six months in the White House was the very department with you know, hundreds of thousands of staff, of federal employees that is charged with securing our borders, uh, rigorously enforcing existing immigration law, and in our instance under President Trump, at least it's outset directing a wholesale change in immigration policy. You know, this department either doesn't have the capacity to do that, or in its entrenched bureaucracy is not interested in doing those things. Yeah, those are sort of two different issues, right? One is a right bureaucratic issue; the other is sort of a deep state issue. Precisely. I often talk about the deep state. I'm a fellow at the the Claremont Institute, and in my work there, I I write and lecture on the deep state. And one of my go-to examples on where people say, oh, the deep state, like, what is that? That's just sort of a a conspiracy theory that, you know, conservatives or, you know, fellow travelers of of the conservative movement have concocted to make themselves feel good about, you know, how many of their policy initiatives have failed. Right. One of my go-to examples is over the construction of a wall. Because I think some of your listeners will think, well, that's pretty easy. We're one of the wealthiest nations in the history of the world. We have an articulated border. It's not a mystery what border we're talking about that needs to be secured, how long it is. It's not like we're, you know, in the 15th century, we got to hire cartographers to figure out where are our borders. Right. We should be able to marshal the resources and figure out what would be the best impediment or obstacle to construct and where and do it. And it turns out, number one, upon taking office, no one really knew what the wall would be or what it would look like or where it would go. Right. Even though, as you know, Mark, I mean, I'm sure some of your listeners know, I mean, under the Secure Fencing Act under Bush, this had already been kind of identified. Work had been done on this, but it was still largely a mystery in the institutional memory of DHS. When you say a wall, what do you mean? Where do you want it to go? And then two, it turns out, well, the lawyers get involved, and the lawyers at DHS and the lawyers at DOJ and eventually the lawyers at DOD will all say, well, you don't exactly have the equities to do this, the legal equities. And the major impediment to progress on the wall ended up being the Army Corps of Engineers. Really? Which I think for a lot of people sort of, you know, keeping score at home, they want to say, well, you know, it was, it was this secretary at Homeland Security or you know, the Pentagon didn't want to actually risk legal challenges over some of its funding for this or, or whatnot. Or the Democrats no, in Congress, too. I mean, or the Democrats right. in Congress, right. But ultimately, I mean, so much of the hand-wringing and the bureaucratic delay came from the Army Corps of Engineers. And look, I think if you want to talk about the deep state, the Army Corps of Engineers had really no interest in this project. There was nothing, you know, structurally in the, in the political game of D.C. for the, the Corps to gain from advancing this project. And at every turn, 
of trying to map out, to plan, to develop the policy, to procure the resources. The core was essentially acting at cross purposes with the White House. Wow, interesting. And so I think when people say, well, the deep state, what is that? Well, okay, look, here's this sub-agency that there's a, a, a levy that breaks or you know, a military installation that needs to be rebuilt or a dam that needs to be reconstructed. Maybe you have some passing familiarity with what the Army Corps of Engineers does, what, what their you know, institutional or legal equities are. I don't think anyone anticipated that they would essentially be in the catbird seat for the construction of the wall and would then have the ability because, look, they're the experts, right? They're the guys with the, you know, the advanced maps and the engineering degrees, and that's what they do. They build stuff. And if they come in and say, well, you know, we don't think we're going to be able to build that, not on that timeline. Not for that money. Everyone else in the room who are, you know, either policy makers or, or, or lawyers or cabinet secretaries, they kind of say, oh, oh, okay, well, you guys are the experts. You know better than we do. So what was the issue there, though? I mean, was it just that they just weren't motivated to do it? Or do you sense there was some kind of actual ideological opposition or, or what? I think an objective accounting at the end of the day, you know, with some hindsight, would be it's a combination of all those things. Okay. There was a general, for a long time, there was a general resistance to the idea that a wall would be effective. Right. What, what efficacy will this have? What are you trying to achieve with this? And then that moved into a, a whole protracted phase of, well, a wall will be effective, but only if it's deployed to certain areas. Right. And then it became, well, look, how do you plan with the buckets of money available to you? How do you plan to finance the construction, the procurement of the materials? the agreement to the subcontracting authorities, how do you plan to actually spend this money? And again, this is where I think, you know, a lot of Americans labor under a real misapprehension about how their government works or the kinds of problems their government can actually solve, which is, look, every time a subcontract was entered into for the procurement of steel or, you know, for a workforce to even transport the steel or start constructing parts or portions of the wall or to build the access roads, all of that then goes through environmental review. Uh, right. All of that goes through labor law compliance. And there are a million junctures between problem diagnosed and identified and solution proposed. There's a million junctures between those two points where the bureaucracy and especially the left and, and what I would call the deep state can then intervene and delay. And, and here's the one thing I'll say on the wall is the civil bureaucracy who were ideologically opposed to the construction of the wall knew how much time was on the shot clock. Right, right. They knew that if we can delay this, okay, that's another quarter. That's more money that has now come off of the total pool of resources available for this project, either because of, you know, labor costs or increases in, in material costs, you name it. They knew the whole time how much time there was to, to play with and what delays would ultimately cost from, from the advancement of the project overall. How much of that, though, was, and this is, applies to other areas, like you said, when the administration took over, they didn't really have a plan. How much of that was kind of the, I don't know if amateurism is the right word, but, you know, the Trump staged a hostile takeover of the Republican Party and didn't have a kind of bureaucracy and waiting of people. And so when they took over on January 20th, it was sort of like, okay, we, you know, the dog caught the car and now what do we do about it? Whereas if this happens again, if there is a more prepared sort of administration in waiting, as it were, they could actually 
hit the ground running rather than trying to figure out what they're supposed to do? My answer there would be, look, I think there's some truth to the idea that transition or the lack thereof really imperiled the Trump presidency from the beginning. Just because the idea that there was going to be a pliant bureaucracy or even that we were going to have sufficient numbers of competent, capable staffers of occupying the bureaucracy, that whole notion was proven fantastical within a couple of months right. of the enterprise starting. I think to the, the, the latter portion of, of what you just said, I think the key is now is you know whether we're optimistic about how January 2025 will look or not. I think now is it's important for us to start making a real inventory because I, I think there is this mistaken belief among a lot of Republicans or, or conservatives, however anyone identifies themselves in opposition to the left, that, well, we know what happened last time, so we can correct for those mistakes. But here's the tough part of the walnut shell. The left has made adjustments too, and so has the deep state. Right. And so, you know, this is a game of asymmetrical warfare, if you will. Uh, as much as we may be aware of some of the traps and delays, the tactics that they use to obfuscate the, a president, a Republican president's plans or, or priorities, we may know those things now, but they have only increased or adapted those tools in, in the interim. And so I think having a concrete plan is essential. And I think that would be the one recommendation I would make and I, I continue to make, which is. We do top-line diagnostics really well, right? in part because we look at, that's how the, the left governs. Well, they said they were going to do equity in housing. And look, it's, it's working for them. As I said a moment ago, like, that's never going to be the case for us. Like, we're never going to roll into HUD and have a compliant bureaucracy that says, yeah, we'll fill out the details, and more than, more than likely it'll be 90% aligned with whatever it is the White House is asking for. Right. Instead, our obligation has to be that we come in with concrete plan. Not a, let's reform and restructure the asylum process, but here is what we are going to do to the asylum process. Right. We've already vetted it legally. We've already run the traps on it in terms of you know, the structural or logistical challenges in implementing the policy. Now we're just asking you to do it. And instead, I think what happened a lot in the Trump White House was we had a, a notion or a top-line priority that we wanted to pursue and then we were reliant on going to the lawyers or the civil bureaucracy to say, hey, so this is what the president's asking for. Now, how, how, how do we, we do it? Do that? Right. Interesting. Instead of having, for instance, the regs already drafted yes. or stuff like that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, and on the regs, that's one of the best examples because the amount of time that was wasted on drafting and securing legal approval of some of the regulatory products. And again, the civil bureaucracy was very well aware of how long each step of the process can take. Right. And then with a little bit of a delay here, oh, okay, so I see you have countered our legal objections to this portion of the reg. Well, we'll take that back and let our principals at DOJ or whatever the reg may be, Department of Labor, we'll let them know, and then we'll come back to you if we have any other concerns. Well, right. That kind of back and forth, that can take three or four months. Right. And yeah. three or four months, and when you're constructing a complex regulation like the public charge regulation, can essentially be life or death for the, the long-term viability, especially in the courts or if you have a, 
you know, a subsequent administration that is of a different party, that can be life or death for the viability of that regulation. Yeah, especially if you have regulations that are mostly done, but then the administration turns into a pumpkin and they never go into effect. Right. Yeah. They never go into effect. So one of the things you also worked on is, and that really never saw the light of day, was constructing the administration's proposed immigration bill. What can you tell us about that? How did that work? Why did it never, you know, why was the trigger never pulled on that? What's the story with that? Yeah, I think in large part, if that process had been started on essentially the the president's aspirations to reform the legal immigration system, if that had been started in 2017, I think it could have been, or at least parts of it could have been introduced and, and maybe effectuated even through executive or regulatory action. Right. I think Part of the problem with that whole process was, number one, the president had decided that he wasn't going to actually reduce the overall immigration number at a certain juncture because the economy, if you recall, was booming and there was a, suddenly a desire that, well, we need, we need more workers. Yes, I recall. I wrote, yeah. wrote about it myself after banging my head on the table. Yeah, and, and I think that's going to be one of the lasting challenges that anyone who cares about the immigration policy area is. We're going to have to work through that, mm-hmm. which is acculturating Republican policymakers, whether they sit in the Oval Office or they're on Capitol Hill, that immigration policy is not developed or implemented for a snapshot in time. Right. That's not why we, we do the things that we do in the INA or with regulatory authorities at DHS. So the idea that you would undertake a reform and then, oh, shoot, well, right now the economy is going great. So maybe we, we shouldn't do this. Well, no. <laughs> right. No, like you're thinking about the long-term effects of continuing to import millions of unskilled workers in an economy, for example, that you, you know, you've written a lot about, Mark, that an economy that is increasingly becoming not just reliant, but intertwined with advanced technology. Yep. Hey, it, we might want to revisit this portion of not only our economic policy, but our, our immigration policy. But what happens instead is Policymakers, whether they're in Congress or in the executive branch, will then get distracted or moved off of a long-term target because the current moment dictates something else, or, or they assume it dictates something else. Right. So I think that was one of the challenges for the plan. And I think the other was, it was essentially the bastard child that everyone liked a part of. Oh, mm-hmm. it's really athletic. Oh, it plays the violin well. But nobody actually ever wanted to claim parentage for it. <laughs> right. So the number wasn't great. The overall legal immigration number did not satisfy anyone who would passively call themselves a hawk. Mm-hmm. But then the rest of the bill was far too conservative, too aggressive for the moderates, or obviously the Democrats, or the moderates in the Republican conference in the Senate or on the House. So... It was this sort of mashup of, you know, a poison pill for border hawks and restrictionists. And then this other half of it is a poison pill for, you know, moderate chamber of commerce types. So it suffered a, a death by a thousand cuts and then ultimately was a victim of, of COVID, like so many of the policy priorities. Right, right. You know, and, and in many ways, we achieved some of the, the aspirations of the legislative reform and the regulatory product that we had to push out under the emergency protocols under COVID. but. The thing I would say is, and having worked on that and, and obviously been in the negotiations with you know, some of the quote-unquote key players in immigration policy, which, I mean, like your listeners really, they probably know this, but we got to find some new key players on immigration <laughs> negotiations. 
But isn't part of the problem, too, the way you described it is that, you know, the death of a thousand cuts issue is that you guys, and this is not unique to at all to your effort, we're trying to do too much in one bill. It seems to me the, you know, you pick two things, Democrats get a little something, Republicans get a little something, and you actually try to get it passed. Is that even realistic in the way Congress works now? That's the essential question. Is it even realistic in the way that Congress does things? And I think this is where your work and then, you know, the interest and the commitment of listeners to this or anyone who cares about the immigration issue said, that's where this all comes in, the labors that we all jointly put forward, which is to sort of demand that Congress move from these giant omnibus monstrosities and start really looking at incremental, what I, what I would call rifle shots. Right. And I think not because I'm defensive of the work. It was like a year and a half of my life. Hmm. Anytime you spend that much time with an initiative or a project, you want it to see it succeed. But the one thing I'll say is there were a lot of good ideas and good policy proposals worked up in doing this full rewrite of the INA. Okay. And I think that's one of the things that we have to get better at is because we don't have that much time. Right. I mean, look at it like the unipolar moment that existed at the start of the Trump presidency was over in about, you know, 14 months. Right. Right. 12 months. When Republicans have majorities in Congress or they they control the executive branch, we shouldn't have to recreate the entire policy playing field. Some issues change and some issues radically change and new problems do arise. But a lot of the time we're recreating ideas that either people like you have already written about. The underlying research has already been performed, so there's no need to then be the first, you know, the the, the attempt at being the novel pioneer at surveying new land. No, like, right. you've got an idea, it's been tested, we kind of know what the factions in Congress will look like, now let's figure out if we can push it. And that kind of efficiency in advancing the targeted reforms to the INA is important, coupled with a real prioritization of what are the things that we can do that will make the biggest impact immediately. And that's the big problem where people have their own little pet issue that they're chasing. And it's like, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, this is a problem, but measured against these other gaping wounds, it's not as a a big of deal. Right. Yeah. Repairing asylum and and refugee law or, or getting out of a lot of the international conventions that have bound domestic law on those subjects is extremely important. It's extremely important for any future Republican administration to tangle with, as opposed to, you know, should we move State Department consular affairs over to the DHS? Right, right. I, I, yeah, may, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe. There's lots of arguments, efficiency sake, enforcement sake, but should that be the main priority? Probably not. Because you only have so much political capital to use and only so much time to use it. Right, so much capital, so much time. And I think the one thing, as you know, anyone in D.C., Cobbling together these coalitions is is very difficult. So if you're going to do all of that work to move a bureau from one federal agency to another, why? You should do all that work and cobbling a coalition together to actually reform, you know, inadequacies in the law. Yeah, no, good point. And that does, I mean, that's, that's an argument that even people on my staff have made against the idea that we should have, for instance, a Department of Immigration, get it out of DHS, have everything in one, and there's, you know, on its face, I think there's probably an argument for that. On the other hand, that means there's other things you're not doing that even with the current arrangement, if we made certain policy changes, we'd be able to improve things. 
even if it's not ideal. I entirely agree with that. I have said many times, immigration policy and the immigration law should be a cabinet-level priority, exclusive of disaster management, or I guess DHS's big focus now, surveilling American citizens (laughs) unlawfully. (laughs) Or or TSA, or cybersecurity, or all the other stuff they have. All the other stuff, right. Right. And, And that's the big, you know, the other thing I would say about, you know, the way Republicans think about this issue set is, and I think you've heard me say this before, Mark, DHS is not a law and order job. Like right. we're always looking for, for the guy who like, you know, has the 10 gallon hat and the 10 star and like, you know, we're going to enforce the law. We're going to round up the guys. It, it's a legal job. Right. It is a legal job because most of any actions that are taken to enforce existing immigration law will end up in court. Right. Right. The macro point there is I think immigration should be a cabinet level priority. It should be its own department because Right now, it kind of lives or dies by the fickle whim of whoever happens to be the secretary. Right. And if the secretary thinks immigration work or, you know, dealing with undocumented minors and, and the, the turf fight with HHS is dirty or, you know, oh, it can make me look bad in the press, then, then nothing happens. Right. And it's far too important. I say often, immigration policy essentially touches on every issue, every issue under the sun that is essential to our republic, healthcare, education, the environment. Um, so I- immigration is too important of an issue just to be left to whether or not a cabinet secretary wants to prioritize it. Right, right. So hopefully you've kept some of those legislative and regulatory language that you worked out on a thumb drive so that when the next administration comes in, whether it's Trump or DeSantis or somebody else, um, they'll be able to use it. What are, you, what are your plans for the future? My plans are to keep pushing the boulder wherever I can. I think, uh, again, that's something I've learned from mentors that I've had over the years like you and, and others, that if you're waiting for some grand battle where it's all going to be decided, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Right. And that's kind of the thing I think a lot of people get ground down with is they have these very you know high aspirations, like this is going to be settled once and for all, and we're going to fix it. And that, that's just not how the creature that is Washington, D.C. works. Uh, the zombies will always rise again, and you have to you have to keep fashioning new wooden stakes to take them out. So I, I think for me, uh, you know, we moved out here to Idaho because we were kind of tired of the swamp for a number of reasons. But where we started this conversation, immigration has always been central to my thinking about law, about politics, and also about what should America do? What kind of nation is America going to be going right. forward? And that's not going to change. And I think... As with everyone that is involved with the center or who visits the center's website to, to learn something, the thing about immigration law and policy is there's always something new that you can learn. Right. It's that dense, it's that complicated. And I say that as a lawyer who has to you know, sometimes opine on these issues. There's always something in the INA that, that will surprise the hell out of me. So. If the um, swamp calls to you and you return, whether it's in two years or six years or whatever, we definitely will want you to come in again and talk to us about uh, what your experiences were and what you learned. So thank you, Theo Wold, who was worked in the Trump White House on immigration issues and has some, I think, useful insights and lessons to learn from his experiences. Thanks for coming on the show, Theo. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And finally, I wanted to draw your attention to a new short paper we have on our website. It's called The Impact of Immigration on Social Security and Medicare, colon, a Conceptual Primer. 
And the point here is you don't need to know any math for this. There's no, this is not an estimate of the dollar cost effects of immigration on Social Security and Medicare. Rather, it sort of goes through how to think about the issue. And the basic point that Jason tries to make is that different parts of immigration policy are going to have different effects on the sustainability of Social Security and Medicare, basically, broadly speaking, different fiscal effects. In other words, illegal immigration and tolerating more of it is going to have certain effects. Amnesty for illegal immigrants already here will have different effects. And then legal immigration policy could be managed in a whole number of different ways to have different impacts on the likelihood of uh, Social Security and Medicare being sustained. So in a sense, it's kind of obvious, but it's really not because most of the debate on the effect on taxpayers, and specifically here Social Security and Medicare, of immigration often just talks about immigration as a, as a lump, as just sort of one big thing. It's just capital I immigration. And what is the effect of immigration? It is no such thing. Different immigration policy choices have different effects. And what Jason did, I think, is provided a good, it's like five, six pages, five pages overview of what are the, not just what are the issues for Social Security and Medicare, but what are the effects different immigration choices will have on that. So I'd recommend that to you. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. It's also on our website, cis.org. Up at the top, the little slideshow with the pictures. And uh, that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in to Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies. And I hope you tune in next week. 